Life's film score by my former roommate, Simon Alexander Adams. It's a raucous and sport performance by the Ensemble Spontaneous Art and Dance Tunes by local favorite DJ Chuck Sipperly. So that's an incumbent of the performance. But Red Bob Massacre tells the story of Maddie Blitz, a young woman with horrendous-looking teeth and nightmare experiences about not fitting in. So... As always, events information is brought to you by Current Magazine and Arbor's Entertainment Monthly, available at many locations around town. Events info can be heard daily in the morning at 1.30, 4.30, 7.30, and 10.30, also at 1.30 p.m., 4.30 p.m., 8.30 p.m., right here on WCM and FM in Arbor. This is the end of Legion Field Recording with Ryan. Thanks for listening. After these next carts, it will be time for Living Riders. Me, a cat, moving in with a new human. It took a little getting used to. She has these weird games she likes to play, like this giant feather. She sticks it in my face. I swat it away. She sticks it in my face. I swat it away. It's almost like she thinks I enjoy it. But seeing how much fun she gets out of it, well, I guess it makes it all worth it. Humans. A person is the best thing to happen to a shelter pet. Be that person. Adopt. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the ShelterPetProject.org. Saturdays at midnight. Odin's dance party. Live from Castle Grayskull. I have the Welcome. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Philip Levine here in the studio. Um, may I call you Phil? Yeah. <laughs> Phil, welcome. Thank you. It's so good that you're you're here, and thanks for picking that first track to start us <laughs> off. I, I didn't realize that's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of perfect. Oh, it's great, yes. We had a little Miles Davis there. Just, <laughs> Very little. Just, just talking. <laughs> <laughs> and a little bass a twang. <laughs> <laughs> and an observation that the floor squeaks, right? Well, <laughs> um, uh, Phil, Philip Levine is here in town. I should say we're taping this program on Saturday morning, October 6, 2012. Um Phil, you've been kind enough to come in early here to the studio before a long day of State of the Book events. Um, thank you. Thanks for thanks for coming. You're welcome. <laughs> and and finding the station without without an escort, I might add. I was shocked when he walked through the doors <laughs> early. They were expecting W. H. Auden, and they got me. That's what happened. 
<laughs> the ghost of Auden seems to haunt the Ann Arbor streets. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, before, without further ado, I'll read the bio in the back of News of the World um, out last year, um, and we'll we'll go from there, Phil. Philip Levine was born in 1928 in Detroit and was formally educated there in the public schools and at Wayne University, now Wayne State University. After a succession of industrial jobs, he left the city for good and lived in various parts of the country before settling in Fresno, California, where he taught at the State University until his retirement. For the past 12 autumns, he has served as poet-in-residence at New York University. He has received many awards for his books of poems, the most recent being the National Book Award in 91 for What Work Is and the Pulitzer Prize in 1995 for The Simple Truth. In 2011, he was appointed Poet Laureate of the United States. He divides his time between Fresno and Brooklyn, New York. Does it sound like you, Phil? <laughs> well, no, it was in your voice. But it's true. I mean, <laughs> if there is a truth, that's it. Uh, that's enough of my biography, <laughs> uh, unless you have a question. Well, I, I wonder, what is it, what is it like to, to live a life of poems? Oh, I, I haven't lived a life of poems. I've, I've, you know, I've worked at poetry all my life. But like most poets, my life is prosaic. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you know, you, you get up in the morning and you go into a room by yourself uh, and you dedicate a hunk of time and see what happens. And, of course, most mornings, either nothing happens or something mediocre happens. And then now and then, something, you, you, you are repaid for your patience with a poem, with a real poem. And it just feels different. You recognize it on the, the page. Not always. No, not always. Sometimes... I think something is terrific, and two weeks later I look at it and say, who wrote that? <laughs> Was I hungover or what? And other times, I remember once I, my wife and I were living in Barcelona with our kids, and we wanted to go to Italy. We had very little money. And I said to my wife, I'm going to write a poem for The New Yorker. I'm going to sit down and write one, and they're going to take it. And I have to make it so long so that I get enough money for you and, you and I will then go to Italy. And I wrote it, and they took it. And, and I, my attitude was, this poem must stink, you know? Years later, uh, my editor at, uh, at, I was in at Athenaeum, had a wonderful editor, a man named Harry Ford. <clears throat> he said to me, why didn't you ever put that poem in a book? I said, oh, it's no good. And he said, it's better than a lot of poems you put in these books. <laughs> <laughs> Tell it like it is. Yeah, it was a great editor. <laughs> and I went back and looked at it, and he was right. It was a good poem, and I, I had thought my motives were because of shoddy. It. 
<laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, because most of the motives for your other poems seems to it comes from a more pure place. Like that's what you think. The voice from for the voiceless sounds yeah. pretty noble, Phil. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I need to be forgiven that. <laughs> It's sort of grandiose, isn't it? A voice. So the, where did I come up with such pomposity? Uh, because actually, I write for myself. That is. That's probably. That's probably the simple truth, isn't it? Because yeah. you. Because you have to somehow. It's this. Because you've known since you were. Fourteen or so that you. Because your your mom encouraged you to write poems. Yeah. Right, Phil? But not then, not when I was 14. She didn't know I was writing poems. But you were. Oh, yeah. And you, on your own, you were reading um, Stevens, Frost, right? Like these... Uh, not at 14. Not, oh. No, no. I'm, that, I'm making you a prodigy. A <laughs> when you were four years old, Phil, you yes, were yes, finished uh, with Whitman. <laughs> no, at four, four years old, I was just starting Kafka. <laughs> and, and it explained why... Why dinner was such a riot in our house, yes, and the food so bad. Uh, what I was reading, I suppose, at 14 was the Old Testament, more than anything else. Why? It's a great book. I mean, I didn't believe it, but it, it's kind of mythology, but it's a very rich mythology. You know, it's got great characters. And the prose... Was was musical. Was it the King James version? Because yeah, I remember, yeah, yes. Yeah. I, no, I didn't read it in Hebrew <laughs> uh, or Aramaic. I read it in the King James version, and I found it beautiful and inspiring. And did did your folks know you were reading that, or was it something that was just your own pursuit, Phil? Well, the book was there. Mm, in no, the house? Yeah. Were there other books in the house, too, or was this yes. one of the only books? Oh, there were, there were, the house is full of books. My father, of course, died when I was five, so he wasn't taking part in this, but his library was there. And, and he loved the Latin poets. They were there in translation. Uh, I don't know if he knew Latin at all. Uh, my mom... Because he came to the States when he was 11. Yeah. Right, on, on on the boat from Russia? Uh, the boat, I think, came... <sighs> I'm not sure. My mother got the boat from Scotland. Oh. She sailed from Glasgow. Uh, they came separately, and my father settled in New York, and my mother settled in Detroit, because her father had gone ahead to Detroit... Uh, he was leaving to avoid the draft for the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-5. The draft was 15-year draft in the in, in the Tsar's army. Who the hell needs that? We thought Afghanistan was bad here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, he he was a, a he had a job traveling in New York. I don't remember what he was what company he worked for. And he came to Detroit as to sell whatever the hell it was he was selling. <laughs> and he had a list of people from his village in Russia. And my grandfather was on the list. Was it something, maybe um, letters from home or so, to say, well, if you're going to Detroit, yes, so-and-so exactly. lives in... Oh. Exactly. That's right. 
And uh, in some ways, it seems like a smaller world than than now with the internet. <laughs> more intimate world in a way. Yeah, I mean, communications like this had a kind of uh, what charge to them. You didn't get that many. Today, email comes thundering into your head, and and you ignore most. Of it. I ignore most of it. I mean, I'll go back to to Brooklyn, and I'll turn on the computer, and there'll be a hundred or a hundred and twenty messages, and I'll erase them all. <laughs> what am I going to do? Read them? <laughs> nah. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe the people who know you best would also know to write you a letter, too, perhaps. Yes. So. Yeah, they wouldn't phone because I don't pick up the phone. So they, <laughs> if they want to reach me, they, yeah. Well, I'll look out for uh, for a friend. Uh, and I have two different email addresses, so my friends have the mm-hmm. one. Because it does speed some things up. but, but Oh, yes. But, yeah. but, but your dad going to Detroit, so he met... So your mom, because her dad was on the list of family-approved friends. She was 18 years old. (gasps) What an age. Yeah, and she would have been, he would have been 24 or 5, maybe younger, maybe 24, yeah. And, uh, you know, there was romance in a marriage, and three sons arrived. Not at the same day. <laughs> you weren't, you're not a triplet, right, Phil? No, I am a twin, though. You are? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'm an identical twin. My brother's still in Detroit. Wow. Have you, have you written about that, that duality in some way that I... It's, it's in a lot of poems. Without, without announcing itself. That is, there are poems in which... Two men kind of become one man. Could it even be in the the poem uh, when Lorca meets Crane and the the narrator is looking out a window? Or no, no, no? okay, no. no. <laughs> All right, I won't try to misread any more poems. Yeah, then, okay, but... yeah, no, but it's there. Sometimes the meetings are congenial. Sometimes they're fraught. Uh, but it's never there as a... There, there is one poem when it's there as a brother. Oh. When we turned 50, for some reason, I, well, I was turning 50, I got taken with the idea of writing a poem about that and about mm-hmm. our growing up. And there, I actually say that we're the same age. Okay. I'm trying to think of what the name of the poem is. Uh, you can have it. That's the name of the poem. Yeah, that's a great. I it's your. I love like um, your your titles. I was just uh, in my class yesterday. The students we all read. Um, Ask for nothing. Um, you know these titles. Like that's very. <laughs> <laughs> you've got away with them, Phil. Very, very Philip Levine. <laughs> yeah, aggressive. <laughs> Is it that? Is it or just direct or or what? Yeah, I like your word. Direct, very direct. Well, it seems like you felt this this mission for a long time, which you were joking about earlier was like this the the voice of the voiceless. Like you were trying to. I don't. Well, mean, well at the same time that I felt a mission, you might say I'm using your language. If that's okay. I so. also felt. 
who the hell are you to me to announce yourself as the poet of the voiceless i mean you're not walt whitman and you don't feel the way walt whitman did uh you're a different person in the sense that i'm speaking for multitudes is nonsense I'm speaking for me and maybe my brother, my kids, my wife, my best friends, some of the poets who dig my work. No, you know, no, I mean, I guess somebody asked me a question and I gave that answer. <clears throat> but it, I did say it. I'm not denying it. <laughs> but I've said a lot of things. That, <laughs> and they don't, they don't, all of them don't keep resurfacing in every. No, that's right. <laughs> every, yeah. That's, um, I should have known. I should have known <laughs> that this, this has the smell of something that's going to be nailed to you for the rest of your goddamn life. <laughs> and surely it's the alliteration. <laughs> yes. 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 Uh, oh, well. Phil, we'll take a short break and then we'll be right back today on Living Writers. Philip Levine is here in the studio. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm so glad you did. Uh, today, Philip Levine is here in the studio. Um, Phil, thanks for being here again. You're welcome. I'm going to keep thanking you because <laughs> mm. I'm just so happy you're here. And and also thanks to Stephanie for engineering and for finding the Miles Davis. Mm. That song is is beautiful. Now I know it's a kind on the album Kind of Blue. Yeah. And... Um, and it was the flamenco sketches. Yep. And and your your parents when you were, your mom when you were little or so said that you had some Spanish ancestry. Is that true? Well, that I read about you and and but you didn't because uh, well my it was not my mom it was my aunt my aunt Belle who liked <laughs> who was even more dramatic than my mother and uh, they sound wonderful. <laughs> yeah, our roots are not you know from Poland or. Ukraine or Russia? Oh no, we come from noble people in Spain. You know this. You know the, your family lies to you, or or maybe she believed it. My aunt Belle could have believed it, because she tended to mythologize her life. One uh, a woman I I deeply loved, uh, a very flawed but wonderful, at times woman. Always a woman, but always deeply flawed. <laughs> but very kind to me, very kind. When when you were growing up, or just throughout, like her whole, because sometimes you know, there's those times in your you, when you're young that there's certain people that come in and they can make all the difference. Like it sounds like Aunt Belle might be. Yes, one of <clears throat> she was uh, she was adventurous. Uh, Highly eroticized, I might say. Uh, I mean, if I was with her walking down the street and a handsome man came the other way, I could feel her pulse speed up. I could watch her head move. I could see her 
stride change to more feminine one. She was on the make every day of her life. I loved her. So no wonder she ignited your imagination in a way then. Only my imagination, I'm, I'm uh, honestly. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like she gave you this Spain in a way that might have been an, like this life of your imagination, like a place, because then, then you, then you uh, found uh, com- camaraderie with the idea of the, the, um, the revolutionaries in the Spanish Civil War, and it, it's... That wasn't the gift of my Aunt Belle. That, no, okay. <laughs> that was the gift of uh, history. Uh, the timing? Yeah. Uh, the Spanish Civil War was so mythic in Detroit because young men went to it, young men whose kid brothers I was in school with, and they didn't all come back. Some of them died there. Uh, they went with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, uh, to fight for the republic and some just went to fight for the left they the the abraham lincoln brigade was largely communist uh but then there were others who weren't communists but who felt this was an important war and and uh the western democracies if they're democracies at all had to stand up to fascism uh, and one friend Uh, you know, a kid who was in my classes, his older brother went and died. And, you know, I was a kid. I don't know, what was that, maybe 10, uh, maybe 11. And, you know, he, when I knew that he died, he'd passed into mythology. He'd become a hero, you know, to me. And and I, I would read everything I could about the war, and that's when I I discovered uh, the anarchists of Spain, and and their vision of of life uh, and capitalism and uh, the, the role of work in our lives and and our relationship to uh, to the earth and to each other, and it, to me it was a beautiful vision. I mean, it's often associated with uh, violence and bombing and what have you. It wasn't about that at all. It was about a vision in which there's no such thing as private ownership uh, and that we share in the wealth of the world and we are obliged to leave the world a better place than the one we entered. and so there's, some, there's something very beautiful about it. It, it reminds me of the early visions of Christianity. Uh, small cluster of people dedicated to a valuable vision. This is before Christianity becomes Christianity when it's just the followers of a man named Jesus Christ. Uh, and they saw it that way. These, don't forget, they were growing up in Spain, a deeply religious country at the mm-hmm. time, uh, and they felt justifiably totally uh, betrayed by the church, which was a tool of, of Franco. Uh, Franco or, or the, the great landowners, the industrialists. Uh, so 
there was one anarchist, I forget his name now, who swore on the head of the Virgin he would get his revenge <laughs> against... You're going to swear. <laughs> against, against the Archbishop. Yeah. He, that was his enemy. He swore on the head of the Virgin. I, th- that's the contradiction of religious people, deeply religious people, uh, in pursuit of a vision that satisfies them, a religious vision. And they found it in Spanish anarchism, which is both a, a philosophy of, of economics and, and a morality by which you might live. And it did live for a short while. In many of the villages of uh, Catalonia uh, became anarchist uh, communes in 1936 and 7. You could read, uh, have you ever read Homage to Catalonia by George Orwell? No. Yeah, well, you should. Because Orwell went to the Spanish Civil War. He was not an anarchist. But he he enlisted not in the in the communist army, but in something called the PUM, which was basically a, a Trotskyite outfit, and and he he saw the beauty of 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 the of the uh, of the true left, uh, and. Uh, he saw the betrayal by the communists who really didn't want to win the war because they were they knew politically it was unwise to have a, an anarchist community in Europe scaring the French and the British better let it go fascist with a ruler like Franco who wasn't going to get in on anybody's side you know he was just going to rule Spain and crush it as best he could. Yeah, I'm oh, talk, why am I just is, talking about politics? Well, Let's get the hell off this. Well, <laughs> but politics is something you care about, and I think when you were a teacher, and this is the sort. It seems to me like you're like this was deeply um, uh, somehow ingrained into you. Like you, you. Um, this this informs your your vision of the U.S. politics and maybe what you even had hoped to see some glimmers of in some of your students when at Fresno, like what, like why aren't some students writing political poems or or are your, because we can't say your poems aren't political. Um, I never, I never, I never urged my students in any way to write political poems. Okay. (laughs) I never urged them to write any kind of poem. No, just run. Just to write well. Oh, right. Okay. To write well. No, no, no. I mean, that's, no, I didn't. First thing, deeply believing in anarchism as I did, which I don't anymore, for, say, 20 years, I recognized that this was far out and impractical and nuts and I wasn't going to, you know, bite my students here, infect them with my, with my disease, uh, this sort of absolutist vision, which had n- no chance of realizing itself in the United States or in France or Britain or Japan or, you know, the countries that claim to be democratic, the powerful ones, Germany, Holland, Sweden, Norway. Denmark, <laughs> Italy, 
Italy. <laughs> Sardinia. <laughs> this is, I think you're writing a new poem. This Venezuela. The yeah. latest global poem by yeah. Philip Levine. Ignoble is the word. <laughs> All right, let's 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 find another subject. Okay, okay. Well, how did we even get here? It was all on Bell. Spain. Spain. Oh. <laughs> you you got us on Spain. Oh, that's well. Yeah, it was Miles Davis. Yeah. If we must <laughs> point to someone. <laughs> well, you went to Barcelona and lived there a couple yeah. of times, right, with the family. And... <clears throat> yeah, we, uh, we went. To, we lived two years in Spain, one year in Barcelona, and then the next time when we went back, we had even less money. And I had a friend, an American I knew from San Francisco, uh, who had found a, a beautiful village in the south of Spain where it was incredibly inexpensive. So we went down there. It was west of Malaga. Uh -huh. uh, but I didn't like it as well. Uh, it was Andalusia. And there were too many exiles, what have you, uh, expats who you didn't get the flavor of of, of spain mm. it, was, it was it was catering to europeans and i say europeans because at the time spaniards didn't think of themselves as europeans right right I iberians you know mm -hmm. portuguese the same way i mean somebody would ask me uh, did you come here through europe or did you fly here <laughs> <laughs> and you'd say i'd say well, we are in Europe. No, we're not. No, we're not. No, uh, we're not. Iberia. No. Yeah. Uh. I remember a friend of mine telling me he was driving with a, a Spaniard who I knew. In fact, I rented my house from this guy, Don Emilio. And they were driving west, and you could see the pillars of Hercules, the, the mountains on the uh, African coast, near the African coast. And... My friend Jim said, look, there's Africa. The haze had lifted. And he said, Africa? Africa. Yeah. He said, it's a, it's a continent. It's one of the major continents. Don Emilio is a gentleman, or you wouldn't call him Don Emilio. Africa. It's big? And Jim said, yes, it's big. As big as Spain? So... World a deeply insular people there. Jeez. But in Barcelona, you had a, a profoundly well-educated and a people with, an, with a real sense of pride in being Catalan mm. and, and a mm. profound hatred of Madrid, Franco's Madrid, and its effort to uh, delegitimize them, their language. You couldn't speak their language in, in, in a public gathering. It was, it, nothing was published in Catalan. All the kids spoke Catalan at home and Spanish in school. Span it was illegal to teach Catalan in school. Uh, and I, I was at a friend's place and a Catalan poet and his nephew came in the house and they, right away they were conversing in Catalan. He, the kid was just back from school. He was about 11 years old. And he said, see, all day he's been studying in Spanish, and now he comes home and speaks his own language. And what a relief that must have been. Yeah. yeah. What fun. <laughs> <laughs> and do you speak both, Phil? No, I never spoke Catalan. No. No. I didn't need to because 
Spanish was the language of everybody. It still is. You can go to you can go to Barcelona, and do everybody speaks Spanish. There was I remember back in 1965, the novelist Robert Coover and his wife Pili. She's a, she's a, she's a Catalan. Took me up into a mountain town, uh, and I, a woman came. I, I don't know why this woman was curious about me. Maybe because my clothes were different. Uh, <laughs> I was wearing American clothes, and she asked me where I was from in Catalan. I didn't understand. Pili said she wants to know where you're from, and I said. Uh, the United States, she, Peely said, the United, I could recognize the United States. <laughs> Where's that, the woman said. Television had not reached this village. So they were, you know, it was, and she couldn't speak Spanish. So this was an amazing experience then, and also to know that U.S. isn't ever, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a humbling or so in this way as we think of our, our, our way, as we make our way around the world and what our our perceived position. Yes, and how terribly know. important we are. And here's a woman who's important. <laughs> yes. Whereas in Barcelona, it was, it was to your advantage to be American because we had a huge fleet out in the harbor. Aircraft carriers, destroyers, cruisers. And that was a good thing. Well, it meant you got a lot of respect. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> they think you have connections to yeah. the aircraft and, there, and, and in 1965, there were very few Americans there. Mm-hmm. Very few. It, it, was an, it wasn't the Barcelona of the Olympics or today. It was an ugly industrial city. It was the Detroit of Spain. We'll take a short break, and then we'll come back uh, and speak more with Philip Levine here today on Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Today, Philip Levine is here, and that was Bill Evans. That was Bill Evans. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw him. Actually, the only time I ever saw him play live, I had never heard of him. <clears throat> and I was giving a poetry reading, and, and I, there was a guy I'd known from the past who was a jazz pianist. And he said, you've got to hear this, this pianist. He's got a trio here. Uh, and he, this guy is amazing. He's going to change jazz piano. And he took me to this fancy, fancy place. And it was Bill Evans with the great trio, Scott LaFaro, the great bassist who soon died. And I'd never heard anything like this. It was a new take on the way trios worked. It was a new take on jazz piano. It was unbelievably lyrical. And, and as you could hear, it wasn't, it wasn't rushed. He could, he could play fast if he wanted to. I mean, he had chops. He could do what he wanted. But there was something I'd never heard before. And this guy's playing. It was, it was almost sublime. Because it seemed like he was slowing down time in places when you expected something like to drop, like the pian- that note to be pressed or so. Yeah. It felt a little... 
He makes silence musical. Like, like poem, uh, poems as well. Poems should, yeah. And they often do. Sometimes you read a poem and it's so bad all you want is silence. <laughs> On one of those bad mornings, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, maybe thinking about poems that that you love, and and uh, Larry Levis, he, he he's someone who uh, I think he loved his poems. Uh, I loved his poem. Yes, and still do. Yes. I met Larry when he was 18 years old. <clears throat> he came in your office, right? That's right. He came <laughs> into my office, and I didn't know he was an entering freshman. And he wanted, he wanted me to describe my poetry writing class because he, he was interested in it. And so I described it to him that I asked the students to do certain things in the class. They didn't have to do them, but then they didn't have to pass either. Did they? <laughs> uh, I like so, your spirit. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't forcing anybody to do anything. They didn't have to take the class. It didn't fulfill any requirements. So when I was done, he said, I think that's exactly what I want. And uh, then he explained to me that he didn't have the prerequisites. But by this time, we were talking about poetry. And and I discovered that he he was reading T.S. Eliot, he was reading Hart Crane, he was reading Rimbaud, he was studying French from high school, and that he was an unusually well-educated young man, uh, and he was really serious about poetry. And so he took my class, and, and then I discovered how, how talented he was, because you can be very bright and very knowledgeable and not be able to write anything. But not him. I mean, he could, right from the get-go, He, I just said, this is, this is going to be a hell of a semester. And it was because this, the other students in the class, instead of writing about the moon uh, <laughs> or, or the curse of time, began to locate their poems because his were located. And they were located in the San Joaquin Valley. Uh, and they reflected that world the world of, of uh, hard labor, the, word, the world of uh, injustice, and the world of uh, astonishing people. Mm. Whitman, Whitman urges us to go among powerful, uh, inarticulate men and women, and he had been there. You know, he had been there. And, yeah... Powerful, uneducated is what Woodman actually says. And Larry had been there, even though he was only 18 years old. I was always puzzled as to why he hadn't gone to the University of California, Berkeley, a great school, instead of a dump like Fresno State. And he said... Uh, no offense, Fresno. <laughs> no, no, no offense. I mean, it's a much better school now. No, it's not. It's the same. I take it back. Uh, he had flunked a course... In, in his junior year in photography, he discovered he, he had no gift for this, and he flunked. And that kind of screwed up his, his, his grade point average, and he couldn't get into Berkeley, so he came to Fresno State. By this time, he'd found out there was supposed to be a poet teaching there, and that's what he wanted to become. It was me, yeah, because I was the only one teaching poetry at the time.
Yeah, it was a, he was he was a great companion, and uh, wrote some amazing poems. I recommend Winter Stars is a phenomenal book, and uh, and uh, Elegy, his final book, the one I edited, uh, because he died before he could uh, put it together, and uh, I was asked to edit it, and I did. Not something I wanted to do. I mean, you you lose one of your best friends, and now you have to sit there for three or four months looking at his with, poem. With it's his unpublished poems, yeah. But you know, his sister, who's a marvelous woman, Sheila, uh, asked me to do it, and uh, I, you, you know, she'd been so supportive of his writing life <clears throat> that I. There was no way I could turn her down, so I did it. And and I think it I think the book's gotten a lot of attention. I don't know from critics or anything, but wherever I go, there are people like you who ask me about Larry Levis. Uh, it's happened here. And uh, yesterday I was in the in the uh, what do you call it room? Oh, uh, the Hopwood, Hopwood room. And a guy asked me, you know, to talk about Larry Levis. So he's still, he's, in some ways he still can be a... Com- in some ways he's more widely read and known than he was during his lifetime. He's become mythologized, as, as you know, writers do when they die young. Mm. That will never happen to me. I missed my chance. I mean, I drove recklessly for all those years, and I never made it, you know. I thought it was just because you were from Detroit, Phil. Uh, no, I, I enjoy I think I enjoy life more, perhaps, than Larry did. I'm not sure. Larry had a different vision of how, how you become a poet. He, he really was out of that, that band of dedicated writers... Uh, Rambo and Hart Crane would have been his, his, uh, his uh, comrades. Uh, writers who believed that if they, that their first obligation is to follow their intuitions, to follow their feelings, and if they deny themselves things like that, uh, if they don't, then they won't get their poems. Mm-hmm. And uh, he felt that way. People, some people say, was he self-destructive? I say, no, no, no. He was just that dedicated to poetry that he felt he had to do things that to us might seem irrational. To be fully alive. I... To live in his imagination, yes. To obey the dictates of the imagination and not the dictates of the, of the rational mind, which would tell you, don't jump out of that window, you're going to break your leg. And the imagination would say, you may fly, Larry. You may just stretch out your arms and wind up in Albion. Not Albion, Michigan, by the way, but the mythic Albion of the original England. Yeah. Oh, now that makes sense. Why all the Albions? (laughs) Somehow I missed that. Thank you, Phil. That's okay. You're here to be educated. (laughs) It's a continuing forever, I think. If you're alive, it is. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, fully, right? (laughs) Um, Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. Today on Living Writers, Philip Levine is here. Uh, We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. You've got living writers. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did because Phil Levine is here. And um, I've been loving our conversation. Thanks for talking with me. It's all right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> for those of you at home, Phil just checked his watch. <laughs> right, we got more time. It's all right, T. <laughs> Yeah, this was that wasn't the final word. It felt like it. No, thank you, yeah, Phil. I'm sorry. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh. um, can you th- tell us a little bit about the last the the music we just heard? Yeah, that's Bill Evans soloing on "I, I Loves You, Porgy." Uh, he does it beautifully. I think my favorite stuff by Evans, beside from uh, kind of blue, the early work in the. Uh, Village Vanguard, uh, there's a, where he plays live with that great trio uh, with the Scott LaFerro and I think it's Paul Motion. Uh, and for trio and music, I just had never heard anything quite that perfect in a way and yet uh, risky. Yeah, because it's not meant to be. Yeah. Perfect. No, well, or... I, I never talked to him about that. <laughs> <laughs> I only saw him once. Uh, and and then the, there's, a, a, there's late music that you can... It was recorded, late stuff from San Francisco. It's in a, a record called The Brilliant, I think, where he's much more operatic and orchestral. Uh, and he, you know, he's moving around the keyboard showing us his chops and I don't know. I think I like the early stuff, the minimal, minimalist music best because there's more silence in it. And I like silence. Even in my poems, I declare I like silence. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, it's kind of curious that you're, you're filling the world with words uh, that it may or may not want or need, and you like silence. Uh, because it's so rare, I guess. I don't get enough of it. But when I get too much, then I'm bored, you know. And I go, I'll leave Fresno and go back to Brooklyn, <laughs> where there is no <laughs> silence. <laughs> or Manhattan, where you can't buy it. Did you not return to Detroit because your your brother's in Detroit, Phil? So You mean this some, last time? Um, or no. Oh, no, I just mean maybe just... To have also a a home, like or a place or something there. It's not home. It's not home because the Detroit that I loved and grew up in doesn't doesn't exist anymore. I'm lost there. I mean, even though I was a, a truck driver in the city working for Railway Express, which was sort of the UPS of the Stone Age, where you'd know it, like yeah, the back of your hand, the, all the streets. There were no but... freeways when I left Detroit, not a single one. So when they came in, oh. they changed the map yeah. because streets that I would take suddenly ended. What the hell is this doing here? You know, mm. and so I would say go there and rent a car and. You know, if I stuck to Woodward Avenue, I knew where I was, or Gratiot, or Grand River. But when I went off and to see the places that I knew, I couldn't find them because I, I'd get lost, and and everything was different. Everything was different. I think I still thought of it as home, 
as late as, say, 1975. But I don't know. I mean, so many of the people that I knew who I wanted to see either left or died. And now I know almost no one there except my brother and, and his wife. And he, even his kids don't live there. And I have a few cousins that I haven't seen in ages. And, and, so, and the poets that I grew up with... Um, I only know one who's still alive. All the others have died. So, why the hell should I go back? Yeah. You know, I see my brother, and I do go back for that. But, And, of course, I, you know, Wayne or some other outfit will invite me back, and they will assure me the city, oh, my God, this has been going on for 20 years. Oh, it's coming back. You can't believe how marvelous it is. And, you get there, and it's not marvelous. Because I'm remembering most poignantly, I suppose, or most powerfully, the Detroit at the end of World War II when there was so much money in town and so little to spend it on in terms of goods that you people spend it on fun. <laughs> because you could still have fun, right? And downtown Detroit in 1944 and 45 on the weekends was a, a huge party. You had, you know, you had parts of the Army training there, Air Corps. You had the Canadian uh, Royal Air Force pilots. You had the Free French pilots. You had the ships coming in from the Soviet Union and England and and there were all these men, and there were all these women, and there was me. <laughs> Just, you know, I'd be, I'd be like 16. I could go into a bar and order a drink. Nobody would question it. You know, it was... Just, there'd be great music and the Yeah. Oh, the music was fantastic. Yes, you know, 45, 46, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, uh, Miles... Uh, and, and the Detroit musicians, Kenny Burrell, Tommy Flanagan, uh, Pepper Adams, Bess Bonnier. I mean, wonderful music. And uh, it, it was such a treat to be there. Uh, and, and Phil, when, so when did you start? Because you were going to school and then you also um, were, you, you were working nights as well. Afternoons. I usually worked 4 o'clock to midnight. And then I'd sleep, and then I'd, I'd say, get up, oh, 8 o'clock, say, 7, 8, and I'd have a huge hunk of time to write in. Yeah. I was married at the time, not to my present wife. And the less said about that, the better. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the best thing about that marriage was it didn't last very long. It was it was practice. I was For practicing. Friends. I wanted to learn. <laughs> yes, I wanted to practice so that I would know how to do it the second time. And Sometimes I'm, it takes just poets longer. <laughs> yeah, prose writers are just as bad. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> they can afford more marriages. They make money. Yeah. No, so... But you were working, I guess. At yeah, this point, I was working. Because and those were those those years where I feel like I've I've 
read, and if you haven't been misquoted, it's like that those were years that you, you saw as almost keeping you away from poems and you felt like they were a nightmare almost, like the, if working in a factory or, and now. Uh, you know, this is before machines did the work. Uh, the work was done much more simply. There was a lot of lifting and pushing and shoving and this and that because it was hard physically. Uh, you didn't, you know, you had to, when I worked at Detroit Transmission, you got this big transmission case and you put it in a, in a kind of bed and then you drilled particular holes in it and then you picked it up and you put it on a, a, a belt and it went to the next guy and he did something. So the work really wore you down. And then I remember at Chevrolet Gear and Axel, I worked in the forge room and it was incredibly hot and noisy and, you know, metal was being heated to, you know, red hot or white hot. And you'd put it in the machine and it would stamp it. Ooh. Well, that's what it... <laughs> but that's, that's for emphasis. That's, that's what it would do. Yeah, that's what it would do. And, oh, God, I mean, and you just did the same thing minute after minute, hour, eight hours, and... And you had to pay attention. Yeah, that's the thing. It's not as if you could let your mind go no, somewhere. No, Because no. you were responsible for the other people around you, too. Right? Yes, like the... yeah. But ma mainly you were, you were thinking about your hands. Oh, physical. You didn't want them to get mashed because you were all, I was always working with people, with men, missing fingers. And I, and I was superstitious about this. If, if I was going to lift something with a guy missing fingers, I'd try to avoid it. I'd try to get a, a guy with all ten. Says, this guy's not going to push me into that wall. He's, he's, he's aware. And there was a lot of drinking going on, too. Oh, during? Oh, was, yeah. Well, because it was so, like, interminably boring. Yeah. Right? So people were trying yeah. to lift themselves. Yeah, and I would imagine years later it was probably a lot of drugs instead of booze better for you. <laughs> <laughs> we have to take a poll on the fingers, though. <laughs> yeah, right. Fingers kept, fingers lost. But those were the times that somehow, because I'm thinking about the Detroit that, that you return to, even if it's not physically there. Oh, in my mind. Oh, yeah. Well, I still carry it. Sure, I carry it with all those people that I worked with. Uh, they... You know, as the years go on, of course, you you romanticize it. You you ennoble the people. You forget uh, how chicken they could be. Uh, you just uh, as you forget how chicken you were. Right. You know. Uh, you know. You don't want to live with the whole script, so you you revise it so they look nicer and you look. Oh, so much nicer. Uh, and then, you, you, in fact, you look so nice you can enter a poem now. <laughs> That's how nice you look. But what about the truth, Phil? What's that got to do with anything? <laughs> <laughs> when you when you apprised. <laughs> yeah, it did. Yeah, that's right. Amazingly. Yeah, amazingly. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's a lovely book. <laughs> they, they all are. It's so. Wait, is there is there a poem that that you'd like to read, or what? What were you going to say about this one? Oh, I was I was I was looking at the physical book. Yes. See, I, all of these all of these 
covers, images, were chosen by me. Oh, that's good. Oh, great. Right from the get-go, uh, when I my first book with Athenaeum with, and that great editor, Harry Ford, uh, I came up with this image of a lion. Oh. And, and I asked him if I could use it on the cover, and he said, because basically... Athenaeum books had a kind of stripes, color stripes, and they changed the colors. And he wasn't using images like that, pho photographs or etchings or paintings. And I asked him, could I? And he said, of course, it's your book. And I was stunned because I, this was like my fourth book or something, fifth. And nobody had ever allowed me to choose the image and suddenly he's saying yeah it's your book Phil do what you want <laughs> if only you had known to ask before <laughs> I did ask and I got nowhere <laughs> oh. but ever since that moment each of them has the image I've chosen image. every image yeah why this one on what work is <clears throat> why that one yes I was looking for that photograph without having seen it but I had an image that I wanted which was the hard labor of a woman because there is uh, a woman, I think, in one of the first poems, uh, Coming Close, it's the second poem, and I thought, I want, I want someone who can represent the woman in that poem. And I went to a bookstore, two bookstores actually, in New York, in Manhattan, where they had books of photographs. And I had Lewis Hine in mind. I thought Lewis Hine would have done this. And I couldn't find what I wanted. And that afternoon, I went with my wife to the Metropolitan Museum to see something or other. And as we were walking through the galleries to the one where the show that we wanted to see, I passed this photograph, which was a new acquisition by the museum. That is strange, isn't it? It's just me. Yeah. Oh, it's, you know, one of those nice things that occasionally happens, uh, <laughs> like meeting someone you love. Anyway, I saw it, and I said, that's it? And I got the name and everything, and I told my editor he loved it, and he stuck it on there. And I think in some ways it may have contributed to the, to the effect of the book, because this book... It's outsold all of my other books by by at least twice as much. This book has sold over 40,000 copies. Yeah. It's a good book. It is a good book. It is a good book. People think it's my, f that I think it's my favorite book, but I wouldn't say it's my favorite because I wouldn't want to put down these other noble books. That's right, and they're here. You wouldn't oh, say yeah. it in front No, it in that's right. Them. They might be listening. <laughs> and, you know, the, in the... At any moment, these poems can slip off the pages and leave you with silence. That's right. You, you look at me with doubt. No, uh, no, stricken. I mean, you asked me to come here and talk to you, <laughs> and now I'm telling you something that you didn't know, and you, you don't seem to believe me. But if I say the wrong words, this poem is going to go away. It will wind up in a book by Adrian Rich. <laughs> Yeah, I used to believe that. I used to believe that if I lied about important things, because Adrian had, had, was living in Santa Cruz, California, 
and I'm in Fresno. Very different. Yeah, but close enough. Oh, okay. Just physically. Uh, and I believed that if I were to tell a disgusting lie, that palm that was meant for me would veer off and Adrian would be sitting there in the morning because I had all this respect for her and love for her. Yes. And that she'd start writing about these factory workers standing in the rain and she'd give them names and she would wonder, where the hell did that come from? Where did th that... This poem sounds like Phil, only better, because she's more talented than I, so the poem would sound better. And, and there would the poem be, and she, how the hell did I... I never worked in, uh, you know, for uh, Dodge, Maine. I didn't have a job. How did I know Dodge, Maine? How did I even know there was such a place? And she'd call me on the phone and say, Phil, do you ever hear a place called Dodge, Maine? I said, oh, yeah. yeah I used to deliver goods there. No kidding. Well, I've got this poem here. <laughs> uh, it might have been meant for you, but it's a little better written than your poem. Uh, and I would say, well, of course it is, Adrian. You wrote it. You're a hell of a lot more talented than I am. Now the poor Adrian, you know, that she's gone from the planet, an enormous loss. I got a letter from a Canadian poet who said that he couldn't understand why there wasn't a town in the United States called Adrian Ridge, you know, or at least boulevards everywhere. And uh, but, but there aren't, are there? This is a Canadian poem. Yes, yeah. Sometimes the Canadians seem to know things we don't. <laughs> they do. They certainly do. They, 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 they are amazing people. Just watch them play hockey. <laughs> Phil, this is, I love this. Thanks for, thanks for coming here today. Well, talking. thank you, T. It's, it's been fun. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank your... Stephanie. Stephanie, the musician. The lovely musical numbers.